0: Carol Kent told me I could take my mask off for speaking, so thank you, Carol. Very kind of you to do that. Is that the right place, Don Dale? Don and Dale. All right. So this is a very short parable. So I thought I'd look at parables and what they're there for. So this passage of scripture are the words of Jesus and I looked up a very famous book for me, it's called What the Bible is All About, an easy to understand survey of the Bible by Henrietta Mears, who was one of the most wonderful teachers I've ever read. She was at the Presbyterian Church at Hollywood Sunday School which she built up to many thousands and maintained that for over 40 years. But at the start of this book I thought I'd give this a little airing here today because it's the reason for the parables, it's the reason for the story of the gospel. God, man, sin, redemption, justification, sanctification, in two words, grace, glory. In one word, Jesus. And then it goes on to say, "'As a man, Christ lived the most perfect life ever known. "'He was kind, tender, gentle, patient and sympathetic. "'He loved people. "'He worked marvellous miracles to feed the hungry. "'Multitudes, weary, pain-ridden hearts came to him and he gave them rest. "'It is said that if all the deeds of kindness "'that he did were written, "'the world would not contain the books.'" That's a quote from John 21:25. Then he died. So this one, who is everything, he died. He lived for three decades or so as one with us, as Emmanuel. And then he died to take away the sin of the world and to become the saviour of all of us, all who believe. Then he rose from the dead. He is alive today. He is not merely an historical character, but a living person, the most important fact of history and the most vital force in the world today. And he promises eternal life to all who come to him. The whole Bible is built around the story of Christ and his promise of its everlasting life to people. It is written only that we might believe and understand Know and love and follow him. So that's what it says about the New Testament including the parables that we have. On a different plane one of the books I have is written by a modern scholar called Craig Blomberg and it's called Interpreting the Parables and this is a messy book. It's messy because he says that just about everybody has a different view of the parables. So He talks about the controversies of interpreting parables, about parables and allegories. And he says that there are so many different views historically and in our present world about the parables that he suggests that we should actually just read them literally as they're given to us. He speaks of St. Augustine and Aquinas and Calvin and all those people and more modern people than that. And he said that We need to be careful how we take the parables, and that is true. Because I'm going to read a little before the reading of today, just to highlight the point I'm making for the first part of this talk. In chapter 11 of Luke's Gospel, it says Woe to the Pharisees and the experts in the law. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the the meal. So it was a common practice. It was what was expected in the society. And Jesus didn't do it. But he had a reason for not doing it, and that's what he now says, which leads on to the parable we're talking about today. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Later on in that, the last two verses of that chapter, it says, When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So here was this man who taught truth, and they'd never been able to trick him out of telling the truth or argue against him to anybody's satisfaction. So Jesus was here, and he said these things. Earlier in the Bible, in the book of Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, we read these words. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees came together. So it was not just once that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were trying to silence Jesus and trying to get him to say something they could attack him on. They did it in, as recorded in Luke 11, but now here in Matthew 22 it says... Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees came together. One of them, an expert in the law, they put up one of their best people for argument, tested him with this question. And this, I think, is a really important question. He said, Teacher, or some versions say, Good teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, what is that God wants us to know more than anything else? So, Jesus replied, simply and plainly and succinctly, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And he might have stopped there if he was listening to you and me. Then he says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And then that would have been another place to stop. But he goes on, and remembering this is the incarnate God, Emmanuel God with us, the Saviour, the Lord of all, the one by whose word everything was created and sustained. The second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That is quite a statement. Because in the Old Testament era, we had the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the Mount. We have hundreds, several hundred at least, of other commandments that had been added to by the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees over the generations and centuries. And yet Jesus is saying all are summed up in two sentences. All the commandments that God wants us to follow. I'll repeat them because they're powerful. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. Now we'll go back to this passage in Luke chapter 13 and particularly verses 6 to 9 which is referred to as this uh, tree, the fig tree growing in a vineyard. And I want to leave with us today now a, a summary of what's actually being said here And then a challenge, a challenge for me and a challenge for you. I'll reread the passage. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the one who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any cut it down, why should it use up the soil? Now one of the things that Henrietta Mears said that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. You might keep that in the back of your mind. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now we can read so much into that and we can read into it because of our presuppositions and our basic assumptions that we hold, each one of us. We all have different presuppositional bases for our thinking and our belief system. But here, just simply read, we could finish this talk in the next two or three minutes by saying, this tree was not bearing fruit. We could see that as like a life of a person living in the society, And then everything's been tried to help it to grow, to be nurtured. Nothing's happened, and so it's been happening like this for three years. And now, and some people, by the way, think three years is really important, and others don't think it's relevant particularly at all. And then he says, give it another chance. Now, there was a heresy in the second century which tried to read this parable to say that the person telling the parable is God, the Father, and the person who's asking for clemency for the cutting down of the tree is Christ. In other words, saying there's a violent, aggressive God, the Father, and a gentle, sweet Jesus who wanted compassion to be shown. Well, that, of course, is heresy. Jesus Christ is God, and God is one. And God is always full of grace. And I would like you and me, as we finish here later on this morning in the next few minutes, to realise that the central theme of God's revelation is grace. So when we look at this, giving more time, giving another opportunity to grow, and we're talking here not about a human being in terms of the story, but it's an earthly story and we'll see what heavenly meaning God gives to us in our spirit and in our mind, realising that there are many through the centuries who have differed in their view of this. So I thought it would be best to deal with the things that I know. And the first thing that I know is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's like a potter, as we read in the Old Testament. He takes and moulds as he wills. And if it is not going according to his plan and purpose, the moulding of it, he recasts it, he remoulds it, he puts all the clay back together and starts again. That's the sovereignty of God who can do that. Now, the reality when we understand the sovereignty of God is that he can do anything. As the doxology says in Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him all things. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, For us there's one God, the Father, from whom all things have come and for whom all things exist. And so you and I must understand before we try to interpret or reinterpret this parable, we need to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Now part of the sovereignty of God is shown in the creation. For in the creation, the eternal qualities of God, His divine character, were shown, that we read in Romans 1. So that's who God is. He's revealed Himself in the creation. That's why we see in creation such wonderful symmetry. We see an ecological conundrum that's happening, where all the things that God put in place work and they work well, because when God saw the creation after each of the first six days, he said, it's good. And then when he created that strange creation, the human, he said, very good. So in the creation, we see the sovereignty of God. In history, we see the sovereignty of God. When God chose with his power and his authority through his sovereignty, when he chose to destroy large numbers of persons who had gone against his way. And he still has that power today. And then throughout history, as we go through Old Testament into New Testament, but in the Old Testament we see it clearly as well, we see something else of God's sovereignty. One of those is mercy. He does not give to people what they deserve for the way they've behaved and their attitude towards him. So his mercy is part of the sovereignty of God. And then we have his grace. We receive what we don't deserve. It's a gift. It's a gift of kindness. It's a gift of compassion. And Jesus was always kind and compassionate, even when he threw the people out of the temple courts because they were misusing the space. And so what Jesus was showing there was the continuous character that he had, which he's revealed to us in his person and in the story in the scriptures. So we have the sovereignty of God, and then we have the mercy of God, which reflects the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, which reflects the sovereignty of God. And so in this story we read the possibility, because God decides, the possibility of judgment. All have sinned. Fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Now, God created us in our humanity, and in our humanity, we were given a choice, a will, to decide to obey God or to disobey God. And God put that in place, I understand, because He wanted people to be willing followers of Him. He didn't want puppets, He wanted willing followers. So that's why you have a will. And when we deal with children, we can find fairly soon in life, when they're very small, that they have a will. They have a will to do what that child wants to do. But we shouldn't look at children and say, that's what they're like. That's what we're like. As adults, each one of us has a will. And God tells us that we are to use our will to know him and obey him and love him and to serve in his name. So there are two passages of scripture that I thought I would read now. One is in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 is about you and me. And yet we have tried, in our imagination at least, to say that this is about others. But we can't read this and believe that anymore. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, that's all human beings, are all under the power of sin. Therefore, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless, there is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, tongues practice deceit, poison of vipers is on their lips, mouths full of cursing and bitterness, feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Then it goes on in the second part of that chapter to talk about the righteousness. And we sing about my righteousness. Well, we have to be careful when we sing about my righteousness to realise that the only way that we are righteous is by faith, as it says in Romans 1. The righteousness from God is by faith and faith alone. It is not by our good works. And then in Ephesians, we have a passage here. In Ephesians chapter 2, we have some beautiful verses about God's grace, but before that it tells us what we're like. And I'd like you to realise we're talking about the sovereignty of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God and we need to understand to whom these words are addressed and it's us. As for you, he's speaking to the group who are listening but each one of them individually. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient all of us, all of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So that's where we were. Now you might say, well, I was never as bad as those other people. I was pretty good. And well, that probably led you to be, have difficulty in accepting God's free gift of salvation. Because you didn't realise the sinfulness of you. And so we have to come to that point of repenting, acknowledging and repenting of sin, and then living life God's way. Then it goes on to say, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, that's where mercy comes in, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace. You've been saved. So mercy and grace come together. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then it goes on to that excellent verse, for we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I want to come back to what I spoke about a few minutes ago about the presuppositional basis by which we live and believe and think and act. If our belief, and I'm trying to explain this parable through this means, if we believe our presuppositional basis that God is and that God is sovereign and that God is the judge of all the earth, we will take from this passage of scripture a certain set of understandings and applications. If we then believe also at the same time that God is the God of mercy and the God of grace, we will also understand this passage in a stronger way. Because in this passage from chapter 13 of Luke verses 6 to 9, we read very clearly that God is the sovereign one. He can make a unilateral arbitrary decision, which he does because he can. Yet that same God is the God who continually shows mercy and then he shows grace. In in, uh, James chapter 2, we read that mercy triumphs over judgment. And I think that is particularly pertinent for you and me because we're not as good as God. We don't know how to hold these things in tension. Our ability to do things with other people and grace and mercy at the same time. Because it's our intention sometimes, many times perhaps, is to control another person according to what I believe. And what I want to encourage us to do is to understand that we are to do things because God says so. Remember what Jesus did in the wilderness when he was tempted? When the devil tempted Jesus, the incarnate God, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Which reminds me of that verse in chapter 4 of First Peter, verse 10. And verse 11, verse 11 says, if anyone speaks, that person must do so as if they're saying the very words of God. That's what Jesus taught us in the sermon on the the time he was in the wilderness, the desert. And so I want to encourage you and me to realise God is God and we, although we are God followers, we are not him. And so we cannot judge other people in the way that God can. In the matter of judgment of people, some people have believed in the, over the centuries and some today still believe that children should be punished for their misdeeds and people should be punished for their misdeeds. The Bible teaches me that we are to discipline children. We're to discipline the people in love because it says in chapter 12 of Hebrews God disciplines those that he loves. So he disciplines them as a model for us to follow. So we cannot punish people. We should not punish people. That's God's prerogative, not ours. So God has given us the responsibility not to be sovereign, because we are certainly not that in anybody's life, but we had to show the fruit of being a follower of Jesus. Now, the big picture of that is... John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, which says that the word, that is, the word who created all things, by by whom all things were created, the one who is eternal, that word became human flesh, and he lived for a while among us here on earth, and we have the story in the four Gospels, we have the prophecies about him in the Old Testament, we have the extrapolations of his life in the epistles and the rest of the Bible books. And we have this one who was full of grace and truth, and we're told to be imitators of Christ. Therefore, we will seek to be followers, knowers of, and followers of the truth. And so I want to encourage us with that thought. There is a place for us to show grace and mercy. That should be common in our lives. That means we'll be kind, compassionate, forgiving, will be those people who reflect that life of our Master, the one who is God himself, became human and showed us how to live life here. There will be times when we could take this by extrapolation and say that there are times when we should give a second chance to a person and some would say, well, that's following this story here. But the way in which we are to give a second chance to a person is we give a second chance to a person because we want to love them into a new way. We don't want to force them. We don't want to bludgeon them into our way of thinking. But we are to love them to God's way of thinking. So when you are asked why you do something, you need to think in your mind, what does God say about this in his word? As to whether what I'm saying is true. And when we are living out life, we're to ask ourselves a question, is this showing God's mercy or God's grace? If we do those two things, we will learn lessons from this parable and the rest of the scriptures because we will then be followers of the truth and the grace that is in Jesus. So I wanted to leave those thoughts with us today. There's a A wonderful lesson we can learn from every part of Scripture, but I'd like to finish by saying that the key for me of this little passage of Scripture, these four verses, is that it reminds me and should remind all of us that God is sovereign. He's the arbitrary God and he can do whatever he wills. It's God being God. But he has revealed himself to us as not just the God who can do what he wills, But in the doing of that, and in his relationship with those he created in his image, people like you and me throughout history, that he shows mercy and he shows grace. So we are to know the truth that is in Jesus. The Bible explains what that is. And then we are to live a life that shows his grace and his mercy to others. And the way we'll do that is to be examples by doing what is good. As a Christian believer, they will be examples of doing what is good. That's from Titus chapter 2, verse 7. And at the end of that chapter, it says that we are to be eager to do whatever is good. So that must be our enthusiastic, motivated sense of purpose that we are to be those who are enthusiastic and eager to do the good. Next chapter, verse 1, tells us that we are to be ready, prepared to do whatever is good. Now, I say that to you because you will come across experiences this coming week when you will have an opportunity to do good and you may not do it. Therefore, you will not be following God's way in that instance. If you have an opportunity to do something or say something that's good or by listening to a person or by encouraging a person and you don't do it, you're being disobedient. And so we must always be ready and prepared to do what is good. And then our whole life should be that way, as it says later in that chapter in two passages, we are to be devoted to doing what is good. So that will be the outworking of the grace of God in our lives and the mercy of God in our lives. And we will always fall short. If you or I think that we've arrived or that we are better than others, we are not reading what the Bible says. For all have sinned, all and fall short of the glory of God. All of us need the forgiveness. We need to confess our sins, and then God will forgive us our sins as we read in first John one and two. So I just wanted to have leave those thoughts with you today. The supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of the Bible as our guide, and then to understand who God is in his sovereignty as the judge of all the earth, who always does what is right. And he is, through Jesus Christ, Saviour. So he's taken away from us the penalty of our sins so that we have his life, which is eternal. And we don't deserve that, but that's his act of grace to us. So let us be people who are merciful, who are gracious, who know God and his word, and live it out in the everydayness of our lives by teaching others, by the way we relate to them, that we are God followers, that we are Christians. God bless us all as we go into this week.